Good evening, everyone, and a really warm welcome to this, the first of the Summer School Theme Talks for 2021. It is genuinely exciting to be settling down for another week of what I'm sure are going to be stimulating and nourishing talks, and it is very lovely to see you all here this evening. I am welcoming you on behalf of the Summer School panel. In alphabetical order by first name, we are Jane Blackall, Kate Brady McKenna, Michael Allard, and Nicola Temple. You are welcome no matter what you're bringing with you, no matter where you are, and no matter how many of these talks you've experienced in the past. We gather from all over the place, and we gather from our desks, our kitchen tables, our sofas, our beds, our gardens. I don't know where we're gathering from. It doesn't matter how or from where we gather. It matters that we gather. These theme talks are a glorious combination of lecture and worship. And the panel is really proud of the team of speakers that we've assembled. Over the week, we're going to hear five different takes on the overriding theme of why are we here? Discerning our Unitarian mission in an upturned world. The extra length of these talks allows us all to delve further into spiritual and social matters than we normally have scope for in a sermon. You are welcome and it is exciting. I have some practical stuff to tell you before we start some housekeeping notices. Please try not to, or please just don't use the chat function during the talk. It is turned on at the moment. It's been lovely to see your greetings, but if you could please resist the temptation to use it during the talk, it just flashes all over the screen and gets a bit distracting. If you do have questions or things you want to raise, there will be a chance to do that in smaller groups later on, and you can always talk to the theme speaker later. So please just don't use the chat function unless you're expressly asked to. Subtitles are available somewhere down below if you're using the internet and somewhere up above if you're using the app, you'll find a way to turn them on and off. They are live and they are automatic. So sometimes they get things a little bit wrong. Sometimes they get things hilariously wrong. If the inaccuracy means you're not following something, just let us know at some point afterwards and we'll ask the speaker to clarify. Uh, I will warn you that one of the words it's really not keen on is the word Unitarian, which is a bit awkward in our settings. So just be aware of that. It quite often says Italians when it says Unitarians. So just be aware of that. An hour is a long time to sit and look at a screen. So please know that you have our blessing to turn your cameras off and have a stretch whenever you want to. If you're gonna leave wherever you're sitting, please double check that you've turned your camera off. Even if you can only see the speaker, the rest of us might be able to see you. So please don't go walkabouts with us. Turn your camera off if you're not just sitting watching. We will, the panel will be monitoring the screens throughout the evening. So if anything untoward does happen, we'll deal with it. Some of you have the means to contact some of us on Messenger or whatever. So if we miss something, just please try and buzz us, but we're not expecting invaders or anything unpleasant. After the talk has ended, we're gonna take a five minute break to put the kettle on, and then we'll gather again to join smaller groups for some further discussion. 
we do know that not everyone enjoys smaller groups, so you will have our blessing to leave at that point with no judgment whatsoever. The groups won't be monitored and won't be recorded, but I know that you'll all be respectful and compassionate with one another in those groups. We do also understand that you may have to leave before the end of the session. If you miss some of the talk or if any of the talks run a bit longer than we planned, they will be available on YouTube shortly. Uh, so if you have plans and we overrun, please know, but again, you go with our blessing and you can catch up. If after any of these sessions, you'd like a pastoral discussion with a minister about anything which has cropped up during the talks, you're invited to contact Michael Allard or myself at any time between the session ending and 9.45 that same evening. Our contact details went out with your invitation and we will both be monitoring our email inboxes and Facebook Messenger. So if you'd like to speak to a minister after the talk, please contact one of us. So our theme speaker this evening, opening Summer School 2021 theme talks after our lovely worship on Sunday, Saturday, is the Reverend Joe James. And Joe describes himself thus. Joe is the minister of Mill Hill Unitarian Chapel, Leeds, a progressive, inclusive community offering a fresh approach to the sacred. He loves poetry, theatre, film, performance, art and music. He has qualifications and experience in ministry, theology, study of religion, drama, counselling and co-counselling. He leads worship, celebrates life events and offers pastoral support and counselling. Before ministry, he worked in the theatre for over 20 years as an actor, including work at the RSC, National Theatre, Old Vic, Royal Court, Almeida, and as an independent performer directing new writing and devising new work <clears throat> excuse me, at festivals in Edinburgh, Dublin, Cardiff and all over the world. Joe is married to Anne, a ceramic artist and they have two young children. I know that we're really looking forward to what Joe has to share with us this evening. So let us now settle into a spirit of receptiveness and community. There is a light. There is a light that shines brighter than any light on earth, higher, higher than the very highest lights of heaven. It is the light that shines in our heart. Light our chalice today with words from the Chandogya Upanishad, words that were written approximately 3,000 years ago. And I'd like to invite you in to this theme talk this evening with a short time of devotion like to invite you into your own breath. I'm going to play a piece of music 
performed by Michael Baum and Sue Bourne at our Easter Day service this year at Mill Hill Chapel. It's the Louange a la Immortalité de Jésus by Olivier Messiaen. Mystic, poet, monk, and Philetius wrote To one who realizes God, there is no difference between the spirit and the senses. We feel God's presence. So here is God. There is no difference between the spirit senses. But to invite you as we center ourselves to look around you 
in the room wherever you are and identify five things five distinct things you can see four things you can feel it could be as simple as the socks on your feet or the chair you're sitting in your coffee cup your computer keyboard four things you can feel Amen and welcome. Before I begin, I'd like to uh, thank the panel who've invited me to speak today and offer prayers 
for all the speakers who are working on their theme talks for the week as we proceed. It's a huge honor to be invited to address summer school, but it's also daunting. And I want to offer those prayers to all of our speakers this week because this is a great question. It's a great question, and as much as it's an honor to speak to the summer school, it's an honor and it is daunting to square up to such a question. Why are we here? While we are in this space of prayerful attention, I'd like to invite you into that question. Why are we here? And what might emerge? The kaleidoscope has been shaken. The pieces are in flux. Soon they will settle again. Before they do, let us reorder the world around us. We must all have had some sense of wishing to make a new start out of the chaos of pandemic, to build back better reorder things in a more suitable and fair just way the felt sense that the kaleidoscope has been shaken the pieces are in flux is worth considering with care because the quote itself is actually taken from a speech by tony blair at the outset of the afghan war and as Naomi Klein has persuasively argued in Shock Doctrine, chaos can be a powerful tool of manipulation. We should look closely at the dismantling of our NHS during pandemic and take care before we assume that we are in a state of natural change from which boundless possibility must gracefully emerge. Instead, we might be aware that this is a dangerous place. It's a dangerous time. Not all of the ideas and trends which are emerging now are benevolent or good. And we might find inspiration from the motto of the Transylvanian Unitarians who, under Soviet occupation, remembered the words from the Gospel be as cunning as snakes and as gentle as doves. I want to begin my talk this evening, the first of five theme talks, discerning our Unitarian mission in an upturned world from a deceptively simple perspective and ask, what is religion? Discovering some sort of perspective on this question will lead us to an inquiry into how we respond to our past 
And I hope then to point out ways in which unacknowledged histories may influence current realities and perhaps identify potential pitfalls before offering what might provide an alternative prospect. Along the way, I hope to provide a few questions which could be starting points for discussion after this theme talk. In the study of religion as an academic discipline, the definition of religion is itself contentious. And there are, essentially, I'm oversimplifying to the extent that will probably make any serious student of religion weep, but there are basically two main camps into which definitional analysis divides. The first is called substantive or essentialist. These are those who think religion should be defined by its essence, by what it centers on, by what it raises up or brings to focus. So the rituals and crucially for Unitarians on both sides of the debate, beliefs of adherence become of primary importance, according to this perspective. And the second main camp is the functional or instrumental, those who think religion should be defined by its activities, what it does, the actions of its adherents, which can be identified objectively by research into data. So you can already tell that there are a number of advantages held by that camp, the functional or instrumental. But I want to say that both perspectives in this debate have got a big problem. If your definition is substantive or essential, and you say that what religion centers on is belief in the supernatural or worship of a deity, say, you then erase or at least fail to acknowledge traditions which require no belief in God or gods, no experiences of the supernatural, and therefore certain types of Buddhism, especially Western secular Buddhism, Jainism, Taoism, for example, and certainly, certainly some Unitarians just won't fit into that definition. But I'd say, and I hope you'd agree, that what they do is certainly religious. And then on the other hand, if your definition is functional, then traditions which, although outwardly seeming similar to clearly religious faiths, insofar as they provide moral and emotional sustenance, say, comfort, instruction, social cohesion, are clearly not religious. I mean, they might be guilds, mutual societies, educational establishments, dance culture tribes, well-being groups, etc., etc. Okay, so you might then instead claim that an activity is religious by virtue of quantifiable actions such as holding the gatherings at a given time in a special place, singing or chanting, 
wearing certain significant types of clothing, repeating rules, including significant rules which are only available to an elect or which an outsider couldn't possibly guess. Okay, that sounds pretty rigorous as a definition of a religious act. But in fact, I've just described a football game, which is not reasonably defined as religious. And anyway, both of these kinds of definitional analyses are over-reliant upon linguistic concepts at the expense of directly lived, felt knowledge, wisdom, experience. And so they risk producing a one-sided and overly rationalistic caricature of religion in the very place where a reliable and useful definition is urgently required. Because distinguishing religious from non-religious activities, events and beliefs, and demarcating where the boundaries between them lie remains key to understanding religion. According to Professor Talal Assad, defining what is religion is not merely an abstract intellectual exercise. It is embedded in passionate disputes. Passionate disputes. Well, passionate disputes on this very matter may indeed be seen to erupt from time to time between ourselves, between us as Unitarians, despite the fact that our own idea of ourselves includes the ideas of freedom of conscience, reasonableness, and tolerance of the views of others. So something is clearly going on here which makes the subject hot, hot, uncomfortable, or even unbearable. And so I'm going to try to proceed with care, with respect, and with compassion as we go on. On my text, I've got an asterisk on um, our idea of ourselves. And I think that's in order to indicate that I'm going to be delving into that subject later. Our own idea of ourselves. So before asking why are we here, I'd like to ask in a spirit of affirmative inquiry, seeking the best, the most positive aspects of the presence of our movement in the world. What are we doing right now? What are we doing right now? And proceeding from there, I'd like to ask, what could we reasonably, realistically, what could we expect to do? And then crucially for this talk, 
Do either set of answers to these questions about our outward activities really come close to an answer to the question, why are we here? So before I ask you <clears throat> for your answers to those questions in breakout groups after this talk, I'm going to say a little about my answers in relation to this chapel that I'm standing in right now, Mill Hill Chapel in the city centre of Leeds. We undertook um, a congregational consultation in 2017 and we realized that we wished to center the idea of conversation. Since then, we've funded a well-being group for all of those four years, which uses the model of conversation as the basis for human healing, for therapy. During this time, we've also set up and enabled a conversation group for refugees and asylum seekers to facilitate English learning and community cohesion. And that group, um, like the well-being group, has been, by any judgment that we could make, an extraordinary success. Uh, across both groups, we've experienced feedback of enormous generosity and kindness. Um, people have reported a real difference to their lives from those activities. So one question I might ask is, is conversation in all its different forms our best life? Does this model relate to the historic salon that earlier generations of Unitarians in the 18th and 19th centuries populated? Does this provide us with a degree of congruence with our tradition as well as a clear contemporary application for the good? So the basis of work around the idea of conversation, convivium, congregation. Then there's our hosting of other religious groups. I have a clear appreciation of our historical understanding that no one religious tradition has a monopoly of religious truth. But at the same time, I don't subscribe to a naive pluralism. I have a standpoint of my own based on my personal history, background, my tradition and my location. So instead of leading services from a multi-faith perspective, I've instead offered space to other liberal religious groups to run their own activities. And so we have for the past few years had a Buddhist Sangha running independently, but under our roof at Mill Hill, a Sikh Simran meditation and a Muslim Jummah 
every Friday? Are we a space for a multi-faith approach to the life religious, the spiritual life? Then we've also offered space to artists and art students, and so we've hosted live music events, live art events, performance and theatre events, and we've acted as a venue for live recording and filming. So looking into the future, now that the post-pandemic many activities have been curtailed, changed or stopped completely, should our spaces, should our chapels, our meeting houses host all sorts of lively arts, lively arts that are now threatened effectively by defunding? Might our chapels and might Mill Hill Chapel here be reinvented as rehearsal and concert centers? Might we come to the rescue of bands and theater groups who will otherwise struggle and perhaps collapse? Or should we develop instead the model of well-being groups and those conversational practices I mentioned earlier? Should we be hubs for all sorts of complementary therapies, meditation resources? Are we spiritual health centers? Or should we strengthen our campaigning activities? We had success, didn't we? advocating for same-sex weddings, should we refocus our campaigning history and hone our campaign skills as inheritors of great social reformers of the past? Should we lobby Parliament for universal basic income, say, for a four-day week, for decriminalization of recreational drugs? Should we campaign on behalf of the refugees that we seek to support by our conversation group? Or should we throw our shoulder to the wheel and campaign against the destruction of the environment, which it's pretty clear to anyone who has eyes to see is the most pressing issue of our generation and perhaps of generations to come? What I want to point out is that all our ideas, mine, yours, all our ideas, howsoever good, howsoever exciting, howsoever progressive, all our ideas fall into the functional definition of religion, don't they? They remain in the, room, in the realm of what we do. They enable a clearly instrumental definition of our role and our place. And that may be agreeable to many here this evening. We often say, don't we, that we're about deeds, not creeds, or that it's our values and not our beliefs 
which define us. But I feel the need to worry at these collective nostrums a little. Are creeds really the opposite of deeds? Setting aside the fact that intuition of the divine or holy doesn't necessarily imply a creedal formula. Aren't all our deeds, in fact, derived from or inspired by our lived orientation anyway? And isn't a sense of direction an important human value which arises from our felt sense of the holy? Certainly the great theologian of 20th century Unitarianism, James Luther Adams, thought it was this way round that the relationship has to work, that out from a sense of the holy, our communities could extend responsibility into the civic realm. The theorist of the uh, study of religion, Clifford Geertz, maintains that some of the more rationalist attempts to explain religion disguise a desire to explain away religion. Geertz instead viewed religious traditions as cultures which carry patterns of meaning, systems of symbols. And they do this in order to transmit meaning from generation to generation and beyond generations. And it's this idea that traditions such as ours, cultures which carry patterns of meaning from generation to generation and beyond generations that I'd like to consider after we have an opportunity for further contemplation. I've just delivered a great mass of language and I'd like to take a pause. I'd like to invite you back into that space, that creative space with which we began this talk. So I'm going to invite you here and now to take a little time out. Time out for yourself. Perhaps, like mine, your head is reeling with these words, concepts, ideations, and rationalizations. And so I'd like to remind you of your truest responsibility. I'd like to ask you to find comfort for yourself 
where you are. Allow the chair on which you sit to hold you. Find equilibrium there. You might find it helpful to place the soles of your feet on the floor. I want to raise up a question asked by Julian of Norwich. What exists between my soul and God's? Nothing. What exists between my soul and God's? Nothing. And as we wait here, I'd like to invite you into the sensations of your body, to feel the places of boundary, the space beneath your feet. Feel the soles of your feet and the sensation of the ground beneath your shoes. You can feel the ground. And yet your feet are within socks, perhaps. or in your shoes, how is it that I sense beyond the boundaries of my own body? I feel my clothes. I feel the point of contact between my shirt and my desk. What is between my soul and God's? Nothing. The word liminality derives from the Latin word limen, meaning a threshold. Liminality is the quality of ambiguity or even disorientation that occurs in the middle stage of a rite of passage when participants no longer hold their pre-ritual status but have not yet begun the transition to the status they will hold when the rite is complete. 
During the rite's liminal stage, participants stand at a threshold between their previous way of structuring their identity, time, or community, and a new way, which completing the rite establishes. During liminal periods, times of threshold, social hierarchies may be reversed or temporarily dissolved. Continuity of tradition may become uncertain. And future outcomes, once taken for granted, may be thrown into doubt. The dissolution of order during liminality creates a fluid, malleable situation which enables new institutions and customs to become established. What exists between my soul and God's? Nothing. Nothing. Where are we? Where are we? Why? Why are we here? What might emerge? As long-time outliers, Heretics, inhabitants of borderland, borders between humanist and Judeo-Christian, perhaps, borders between spiritual and religious. As travelers in that liminal space, shouldn't we be able to bear more easily spaces of complexity? Our tradition, our tradition of humanistic reason-based but clearly religious inquiry derives from the huge tumult of the Reformation. I talked at the beginning of times of danger when the kaleidoscope is shaken, but these dangerous revolutions, these convulsions of culture are zones where our tradition have historically flourished. Our earliest inception might be cited in the upheavals of Lollardy in the 13th century or the revolutionary activities of Jan Hus, which were inspired by those Lollards. And these rebellions provided the fertile ground for the reformation of Luther. But as George Hunston Williams pointed out, the reformation had a right and a left wing. 
The conservatism typified by Calvin and Luther was mirrored by the liberationism of the radical Anabaptists and the warm humanistic spirituality of the Sicinians from which our tradition grew, first in Poland and Transylvania and then in the United Dutch territories, close enough close enough in the Dutch territories to cross-fertilize into Britain in the period known as the English Civil War, a time of revolution. And that revolution galvanized the first wave of thinkers explicitly named Unitarian. The title, the name, first occurs uh, in written form in the 1680s, I think. The next British Revolution, a century later, the Industrial Revolution galvanized another wave when Priestley and Wollstonecraft visited revolutionary France and Lindsay and Yolo Morganog seeded Unitarian chapels and churches and meeting houses throughout England and Wales. A century after that, in the 1840s, the age of revolutions galvanized the most productive wave yet, as thinkers like Barbeau, Harriet and James Martineau and others oversaw the most influential period of revolutionary growth. The building I'm standing in right now is tribute to their spiritual ardor, their passion. We must not be afraid of times of great change. Untarnished mirrors, writes Richard Raw, untarnished mirrors receive the whole picture, which is always darkness, light, and the subtle shadings of light that make shape, form, color, and texture beautiful. You cannot see in total light or total darkness. You must have variances of light in which to see. Okay, so against this admittedly <clears throat> slightly grandiose portrait of the revolutionary epic of Unitarianism, it is important that we also keep in view our shadow. I said I would return to the notion of our idea of ourselves. And so I want to ask a question now. And I'd like to ask you to respond quickly. Don't overthink it. Raise a hand for me. Raise a hand if you are reasonably happy to be described as a non-conformist. Okay, great, thank you. Now, again, don't overthink this. Now raise a hand if you're reasonably happy to be described as a Puritan. <laughs> I'm not seeing so many hands out there. And yet, non-conformist is simply the new description of Puritans after the Restoration, after the Revolution was completed or uh, was suppressed. If it is true that religious traditions are cultures which carry patterns of meanings or systems of symbols, as Clifford Geertz says, then we must assume that we also bear relationship to our Puritan history. 
And the reason I mention this is that perhaps the reason why we seem to fail to manage liminal spaces well, why we seem not to be able to bear boundary territory, where we seem not to be able to dwell easily in borderlands, when you'd think that these turbulent times should be, really ought to be, our natural ter territory. Is this because an unacknowledged part of our identity, part of our Puritan inheritance, is an over-reliance on rectitude. Rectitude. A Puritan might be assumed to value purity, right? Virtue, righteousness. And perhaps the affirmation of our own rightness, our rectitude, might be why we so frequently cross over in our online and other disputes into regions which are hot, uncomfortable, or even unbearable. Areas which threaten to shatter us in our fragility and our uprightness. Because if being right is our highest value, if we allow that unacknowledged shadow identity to be our dominant characteristic, then as we sadly decline and become smaller and increasingly hollowed out from inside, as we rely more on our own members to provide all our needs and gain less from outside, we're going to grow more and more likely to resort to Puritan habits like purity standards moral formula or ethical codes by which to impose conformity with which to accuse each other of heresy and ostracize rule breakers to engage in infighting and indulge in increasingly frequent purges based on transgressions of rules and codes so we'll dwell less in liminality and borders less in thresholds and more in confines, more in spaces of pure light, more in spaces of clarity, certainty, and supposed truth. But if instead of a puritanical over-reliance on the virtue of rectitude, we were persuaded to instead reconnect with a sense of the holy, which our spiritual and mystical inheritance also allows us to affirm, if we were to recenter a personal sense of connection with the ineffable, with the infinite, and with the eternal as our core orientation, a sense of self-possession, despite uncertain times, could be given space to emerge. A sense of self which enables ambiguity and flexibility. A sense of spaciousness which allows for and engages with nuance and subtlety, acknowledging the right to exist alongside difference and discomfort. 
One of our signboards outside here at Mill Hill read, spiritual resistance to the temper of our time. And I know that other ministers in our movement are working right now on contemplative and mystical forms of practice which seek to reconnect with that other side of our spiritual inheritance. In this, they are reconnecting with a valid and valuable element of our tradition which runs in and out of our past like a thread which appears and reappears in a tapestry through Anabaptist, Socinian and other European Radical Reformation Ecclesia, through the European philosophers of deism and transcendentalism, through the spiritualizers of the Victorian era and on, on into our own period where beloved community promises to abolish the difference between the human community and the divine spirit. It is possibly in this abolition of boundaries between the human and the divine that we are able to perceive most clearly the theological points of contact between Anabaptist, Deist, liberation theologist and contemporary Unitarian thinking. So, what is the Spirit saying to the churches? My title, taken from the book of Revelation, a mystical book of rare power, which is one of the remaining texts of one of the earliest Christian communities, which it is thought emerged and formed around the Apostle John. It is from that context that we have this luminous fragment. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. I was reminded of these words on Saturday as Nicola quoted from uh, Tom Owen Toll. Those words about the beloved community, the beloved community uh, phrase that is attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. and perhaps he did make the most important use of it. But interestingly, the phrase originates with Frank Royce, who was a Pentecostal minister who used it to indicate the power of the Holy Spirit. In beloved community, perhaps we may reach that liminal zone that zone where the boundary between our love and the love of the other becomes blurred and indistinct. The boundary between our love and the love of the other becomes blurred and indistinct. 
what exists here between my soul and God's? Nothing. I want to close by referring you to an aspect of our spiritual inheritance, that of seeing God as the beloved. You have taken me in your arms, beloved. You have given me the greatest treasure of all, the gift of yourself. So I thank you for giving me this gift of your attention, your holy attention. And I um, maybe attempt to repay that gift by playing out with a piece of sublime interaction with that tradition of understanding the divine as the beloved. This piece is by Aruj Aftab. It's from her, um, her recording Vulture Prince, and it's called Last Night. Last night, my beloved was like the moon, so beautiful. Last night, my beloved was like the moon, so beautiful. Last night, my beloved was like the moon. So beautiful, so beautiful like the moon, so beautiful like the moon, so beautiful like the moon, even brighter than the sun.